broadcasting from the road in Medford, Oregon. This is the Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Durrell. This is episode 20, The Copycat Religion. Welcome, everybody, to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Keith Darrell, the host of the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism, and I am part of the FLF Network, or the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. You can head on over to flfnetwork.com, become a member, and see what we have going on there, and we actually have a a bunch of new podcasts dropping uh, this week, or at least this month. I think we have one of them dropping this week tomorrow, and maybe the other is next week, but uh, we have some new... um, podcast coming um, that I think will be uh, added to the content that you're already receiving here, and it will be good uh, stuff. And I'm also excited because uh, my semester is officially over, um, and I'm racing around the country. I just left Moscow, Idaho this morning, and I'm on my way to Southern California. And yesterday, had a really good church service, and uh, one of the uh, and the preaching was really good. And one of the things that was good about it, or interesting enough, you know, not to sound too charismatic with you guys, but um, the guy who was supposed to preach uh, was kind of quarantined for some sickness, and so we had to have a guy fill in, kind of last minute, uh, to fill the pulpit and to preach. And uh, he preached from Acts chapter one. So our church is entering into a season where we're going to work our way through Acts. And so he was preaching from Acts chapter 1, and there are a handful of things that he said that uh, were, were made me want to go out and preach. And so I would say that in my lifetime, every time I revisit the book of Acts, I'm always kind of like, kind of want to see revival, and you kind of want to see the Lord do things and have his hand move in certain ways, and it, basically in a mighty way. And I feel like oftentimes as I've gotten older. So I was converted in 1993. I go off to college. I see a guy preaching in front of the student union. I go home, read the book of Acts, and was just like, yep, that's what they do in the Gospels. They're always evangelizing. And so I kind of thought we should always be evangelizing. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. You get a little older, and sometimes a youthful zeal falls by the wayside. You might become a little more theologically restrictive. Um, maybe, Maybe you hem things in. I remember reading an article by I believe the guy's name was John Kennedy, and it was in response to D.L. Moody, and it was a response to, like, uh, hyper-evangelism is what he called Moody. And I remember being uh, mildly persuaded uh, by the critique of Moody's methods, and basically he was a hyper-Calvinist, John Kennedy was, and he didn't like the Arminian methods of uh, D.L. Moody. Um, But to my knowledge, I'm not sure how much evangelism uh, John Kennedy actually did, but uh, his his basic thoughts influenced me. That kind of uh, began to think, well, if these are the if this is what Calvinism is, and here are the implications. And uh, sometimes it often means we retreat uh, from evangelism. Whereas what I think ought to be the case, if we read Matthew chapter twenty eight, and Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth, um, therefore go and make disciples. So why do we go and evangelize? Well, Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth. So why do I step foot onto a college campus? Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth. When you're sitting there at dinner. Uh, with your family, and you kind of want to shrink back from sharing the gospel with them. Why can you share the gospel with them? Because Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth, and the gospel that you have is the power of God and salvation. And so when you're with coworkers, you need to remind yourself, Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth. So if you're going to go into a fight, I remember when I was a kid going into a fight, uh, a couple fights that I had, that uh, if I knew I had good backup, uh, it was pretty easy to enter into the fight, opposed to if I knew I was going to get whooped. Um, and as a church, we're not going to get whooped. Uh, we might have some setbacks, we might have some uh, bumps and bruises along the way, but ultimately, uh, Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail, 
that he has all authority in heaven and earth and that it's pure joy to suffer with him and everything else. And so that sort of stuff ought to motivate us rather than, you know, our reformed doctrine ought to motivate us and the sovereignty of God ought to motivate us because we know uh, that Jesus will bring about salvation. And so we don't put any confidence in the flesh, but we put confidence in the fact that Jesus Christ has all authority in the heaven and earth and he's able to uh, conquer the nations. And even uh, that was, well, it was actually laid out in a meeting last night that um, the gospel or that, not the gospel, but the book of Acts is actually a new conquest. And uh, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine in Matthew chapter 28. And then he says, you know, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's basically what we're doing now. We are conquering uh, the nations with the gospels, not with uh, guns or swords or spears, uh, but with the sword of the spirit. We are going out and we're preaching the gospel. And uh, so, so just getting into the book of Acts makes me want to uh, go do evangelism. Uh, the other thing that really stood out to me is he commented that every major movement in Acts is preceded by prayer. And so ask yourself about your prayer life. Ask yourself about your church's prayer life. Do you guys get together and have a prayer meeting where you're genuinely praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God, not just praying for grandma, um, as good as that may be, not just praying for your own little sicknesses or your jobs and stuff like that, um, but praying that kingdom come. And so when you just even just look at the general political landscape from Donald Trump on down to the LGBT, and I mean, even Trump's tweeting out gay pride month and everything else, um, hopefully without being just angry or bitter, uh, something even like pride month should stir your spirit. So in Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul is waiting for his friends in Athens. He's provoked at the idolatry of the city. So you ought to be provoked at the idolatry of the United States of America, and you ought to be provoked at the idolatry that's taking place in your town. Um, but what ought you to do in response to that? Yes, be provoked, but don't run away, don't retreat. Uh, go engage and reason with them in the marketplace and reason with them at work and reason with them over dinner and begin to reason with your neighbors and invite them in and be hospitable and by the grace of God, we will conquer the American Empire, just as the church once upon a time conquered uh, the Roman Empire. And when I was in uh, thinking in the context of prayer, when I was in college or uh, in seminary, uh, one of uh, probably one of my, my favorite aspects of seminary was I had a, had a group of guys that were kind of known as the log cabin boys. And every almost every Friday night during my last year and a half in seminary, maybe almost two years in seminary, we would get together every Friday night around 10 o'clock and we'd pray until whenever. Uh, sometimes it was four in the morning, sometimes it was five, sometimes it was six, um, sometimes it was two. We would we'd pray until whenever, and then we would go get some uh, Waffle House. So, and I'd get that Uncle Bert's chili, or I'd, you have to get a waffle at the Waffle House, scatters, cover smothered, all that sort of stuff. And uh, so I'd get a waffle, or I'd get Uncle Bert's chili, and uh, yeah, we'd, we'd have these uh, great times of fellowship, of, of pleading with the Spirit uh, to move. And within that, we would uh, often, when we were all hanging out, uh, the log cabin guys, we would uh, say we were going to go to Starbucks or something like that. The nature of just being with one another and the things we were talking about naturally led to a lot of conversations uh, with tons of people that we would meet at the Starbucks. Or even if somebody was sitting there reading a Bible, we'd go up and start talking to them and try to encourage them in the faith and stuff like that. And so we are just kind of bold. Um, but it was also pretty natural. It felt like the most natural thing in the world was to sit around and talk about the gospel. It wasn't forced. And so oftentimes, you know, I think even nowadays, I, I sometimes overthink, oh, how do I evangelize? And that's one of the problems when we uh, start to read too much. Uh, we, we end up trusting in our wisdom, and especially 
where we're where we are probably uh, certain strands of us are maybe a little more culturally sensitive, and we want to communicate to the culture properly. Um, but what we end up doing is um, overthinking it, and we don't actually uh, share the gospel and preach the gospel. Um, so anyway, that was a little bit of my takeaway from. Um, church yesterday, and then kind of exciting, I left Moscow, Idaho this morning, and on my way down to Medford, I was able to meet up with a couple college students that I met uh, about a month ago uh, while I was preaching. They were believers, and um, they just wanted to learn more about my methodology and why I was doing what I was doing and the way I think and all that sort of stuff. And so we were able to uh, share a meal together this evening and uh, discuss uh, why I do what I do. And ultimately, we have to realize as Christians um, and they're really, really good, humble young men asking good questions. Um, but the challenge we often have is ultimately um, there is a confrontation in the gospel, um, and it's somewhat inescapable. And we often think that we can just kind of massage the gospel in over time. Um, and there's a grain of truth that, you know, like uh, the leaven working through the a little uh, leaven working through the whole dough. Um, and we will kind of work our way through the whole culture. But we have a tendency to think that maybe we can do this without confronting the sinner. And at the end of the day, we are calling somebody a sinner, and we're calling that sinner to repentance. And ultimately, that's confrontational. And I don't know any way around it. And that we're calling them to baptism, which is a death and resurrection. And we are saying that your old man needs to die, and you need to be raised to newness of life. And so I don't, I don't know if there's, a, there's an easy way uh, to get around that issue. Uh, the confrontational aspect, and uh, they seem to kind of agree by the end of the conversation that, you know, not that they have to do open-air preaching, uh, but ultimately, as they're going to evangelize their campus, they do have to confront the campus, and when they confront it, uh, they're going to get pushed back, and, you know, the way I confront it is going to look a little bit different, so I might get, like, a grander scale of pushback, um, but there's no easy way around it. So I've I've had a really good 24 or 36 hours, and uh, by the grace of God, hopefully we'll continue, and I'll go down the coast and uh, maybe meet with some of you and uh, do some evangelism over along the way by the grace of God. And uh, uh, But this week, what I want to do is finish up our little Christ historical, kind of the historical argument for Christ's resurrection. And uh, on my way down, a year ago, I did a brief series on Andy, Andy Stanley. If you go to my YouTube channel, I think you can punch in Unhitching You from Andy Stanley. Keith Darrell, and you should be able to find my videos where I respond to some of the nonsense of Andy Stanley. But I got a text from a friend of mine the other day um, regarding a presentation that Andy Stanley gave at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I, th- I think it's like exposing your assumptions or something like that. And basically, it was an updated version of his unhitched, unhitching you from the Old Testament or unhitching you from the Bible uh, series, where he thinks what you're able to do is just kind of anchor the Christian faith in the resurrection without the Bible, and then, you know, you're able to kind of save the faith for the generation to come. And so in his head, what he's hoping to do is is preserve people that he sees falling away. And even in his presentation at DTS, I think what was pretty clear is that he read and listened to some Sam Harris, and I think it basically shook up his faith, and he didn't know where to go with it. And as I listened to him, trying to listen to him as charitably as possible, there's one sense in which I'm kind of like, I kind of agree with what you're saying, and then in the next breath I'm kind of like, 
you, you, but you're selling the farm. So it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to listen to because I feel like he equivocates and he's confusing with his language and he's all over the place. And especially after giving my presentation the last few weeks with you guys regarding the, the nature of Christ's historical resurrection. Um, and I was actually thinking about my, uh, my last few podcasts and starting off tonight and mentioning Daniel chapter two, Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter nine, uh, fact, Jesus Christ lived, fact, Jesus Christ died, uh, fact, uh, group of Jews, Peter, James, uh, then ultimately Paul as well began to claim that they experienced him and that he was raised from the dead. And this goes back to six months uh, that this confession of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, goes back to about six months um, from the time of the death of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, we have to explain historically what happened here. And I think in some ways, Andy is trying to do an historical argument for Christ's resurrection. Um, and if you listen to Gary Habermas, who I've borrowed some of his basic ideas, he calls it the minimal facts presentation. And he has some really good, I think they're really good, and I realize the hardcore presuppers aren't going to love it, but they're really good presentations on the historical resurrection of Jesus. And what he seeks to argue, he says, if the Bible's true, as the evangelicals accept it, Jesus rose from the dead. If you accept the Bible as being historically, or the Gospels being historically reliable, and basic New Testament being historically reliable, even though, you know, we don't really accept it as, uh, you know, the divinely inspired Word of God, Jesus rose from the dead. Even if you reject the Bible, um, Jesus rose from the dead. And so what, what Gary Habermas is trying to do is, is show that no matter how you want to approach the text of the Bible— uh, you get the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and you know, wh whether you're persuaded of that case or not, that's what he's seeking to do. And so in some sense, when I'm listening to Andy, I think he's trying to do that. Um, but unfortunately, as he's doing that, he's selling out the entire, uh, he seems to be selling out the Bible. And and, and so he's he's kind of all over the place and he equivocates. So, it's, uh, so I say all that because after listening to that presentation today, I was like, okay, I don't want people to hear that. But I don't mind people hearing what Gary Habermas is arguing. And I, I realize some people aren't comfortable with it, don't like it, and, you know, uh, the idea of neutrality and all that sort of jazz people want to push back on. And they think that if, you know, if, if you set aside the Bible in one sense, you have to set aside all of it. But um, there, there is some I'm, – I'm willing to accept some nuance and some different methodologies and all that sort of stuff. So um, – yeah, I just wanted to kind of brush on that because that's some of the stuff I was thinking about. But I, I do want to brush on um, the idea that Christianity is a copycat religion. And when I brought, want to brush on it on from the standpoint that for most of you, it's going to be practical. Uh, because the reality of it is, most of you don't have the time to go and read uh, the stories of Horus and the stories of Mithra and whatever other would-be copycat religions that Christianity has claimed to have stolen it from. Um, you're probably not going to have the time to go read the Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that. And so, um, and, and that's one of the reasons giving you the presentation of the last few weeks that I have. You can, however, memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can memorize, or at least the basic ballpark, take people to Galatians chapter 2, and you can say, look, secular man... Even secular man acknowledges 1 Corinthians is written by Paul. Secular man acknowledges that Galatians is written by Paul. If we take this stuff seriously, you have James, the brother of Jesus. You have Peter, blah, blah, blah. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a confession. It goes back to within six months of the death of Jesus. Um, why, and asking the unbeliever, why do you think a group of Jews began to run around and claim that he rose from the dead? And allowing the unbeliever 
uh, to try to explain those facts uh, with, with his paradigm. Um, but on the flip side, if they want to push back and say, oh, Christianity is a copycat religion, uh, we want to do two things. So when someone wants to claim that Christianity is a copycat religion, the first thing we want to point out, um, contra uh, Andy Stanley, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised up according to the scriptures. So according to the earliest confession in the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised up from the dead according to the scriptures. Um, Christianity does not have its roots in pagan religions, but it has its roots in the Old Testament. And so they'd have to go back a step further and not, uh, so the person wants to claim that Christianity is a copycat religion from other uh, myths. Uh, they have to uh, show that it's actually stolen from the Old Testament. Uh, or that the Old Testament stole these ideas uh, from other groups. And so uh, you know, there's maybe a bigger discussion. But if you go back to Joseph, might be the easiest example, is a type of Christ. If you look at the life of Joseph, um, he's sold uh, by his brothers. Um, there's a guy by the name of John Levinson. He has a book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, and he's shaped my thinking on these issues. But it, the, the short is that Joseph is the beloved son. When he's sold by his brothers into slavery, um, it was a form of death. They even bring the coat uh, saying, look, Joseph's dead. And then Joseph is resurrected. The beloved son is resurrected. He gets a position of prominence, and then he forgives his brothers, and he's reconciled. So you, what you have is the death and resurrection of the beloved son. So Christianity appropriates that story. We would just say that Joseph is a type of Christ. So, so the first thing you want to do, if anybody wants to claim that Christianity is a copycat religion, um, you want to point out, no, what Christianity is, is, is at least claiming from the very beginning is that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And this is why Andy's position is not going to be sufficient. Uh, ultimately, it's not going to be sufficient um, because you, you're going to have to understand the death of our resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures. And it's not just some brute abstract fact. Um, so, the first thing you want to do, show that it's according to the scriptures. Uh, the second thing uh, you, you want to do, uh, which is probably going to be the easiest for you, is simply ask them, what are your primary resources or primary sources that are showing that Christianity copycatted, uh, you know, Horus or copycatted uh, Mithra or something like that? Please, uh, what are your primary sources? And what you're going to realize, they don't have primary sources um, because the primary sources don't play out what they often claim. And there was a movie uh, 10 years ago or so, maybe even 15 years ago, called uh, Zeitgeist. And th that's where a lot of people get their information. That or they just get it from really bad internet sites. And so your first move you're going to want to do, and at the very least, it will buy you time. Um, even if the person, uh, you know, because the odds of, of the person actually reading uh, primary sources uh, probably hasn't happened. Uh, secondly, because they haven't done it, it's going to at least buy you time that they're, you know, stutter and say, I don't know what, where, where it's from. They're just going to assert it. And so what you need to do is uh, push back on them and ask them for their primary sources. And you could even, uh, you know, j just go to, like, it's not going to be like necessarily world-class scholarship, uh, but get a basic idea. You can go to um, even Wikipedia or you can go to, um, you know, just Google one of these guys and you, you'll, you'll pretty quickly discover. So for example, um, one of the things often is going to claim is they, you know, Horace and, um, I'm not sure if I've heard it on Horace actually. Um, but you're going to hear that they're born of a virgin, but here's, uh, the origin of Horace. 
Horus was born to the goddess Isis after she retrieved all the dismembered body parts of her murdered husband, Osiris, except his penis, which was thrown into the Nile and eaten by catfish, or sometimes depicted as instead by a crab, and according to Plutarch's account, used her magic powers to resurrect Osiris, uh, Osiris and fashion a phallus to conceive her son. Doesn't really sound like a virgin birth, if you're asking me. And, and that's going to be the radical difference. Even like when they, when they begin to bring up these myths, um, all you got to do is uh, Google the characters of who they're supposed to be, and they're not really human at all. And now within that, um, and you know, maybe that, this will be next week's episode now, um, so how do we explain these mythological creatures and these mythological stories? I'm going to get into that next week. So um, where are we at on, I, I just want to recap where we're at. Uh, when it comes to historical argument uh, for Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the first thing we want to do is we want to run to the Old Testament, and we want to say that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, please read them. Uh, don't just regurgitate my arguments, uh, but read them, and you'll, I believe you'll see that, uh, that they're referring to the Roman Empire, that there, there's a fourth empire, the Messiah's going to come during the four, fourth empire. In Daniel chapter 2, the rock comes, and it grows, it becomes a great mountain, and that's what we're seeing the church doing now. The kingdom of God started off with uh, a crucified Messiah, and began to expand, and now... We're the, I believe we're the largest religion in the world. I can't remember if we're jockeying with Islam at this point, if Islam's ahead of us. Um, and then uh, Jesus lived, Jesus died. These are basic historical facts. First Corinthians chapter 15, Galatians chapter 2. Jesus lived, Jesus died. Uh, Peter and others claimed that they saw him rise from the dead. And then Paul claimed that he rise from the dead, uh, saw that him rise from the dead. And that confession, the Christian confession, that Jesus died and was resurrected... Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is within six months of the event. And this also bucks up against Islam that says Jesus was not crucified. Because not only do the Muslims have to say that someone who looked like Jesus died in his place, they also now have to explain the resurrection as well if we take history seriously. So uh, this historical apologetic helps us address Islam and also helps us address these Christ myths as well. Um, And so next week... Uh, we're going to get into the idea of where some of these uh, mythologies come from and why there might be grains of truth to them and everything else, and also why we should expect uh, forms of copycats of Christianity embedded in other religions. So when Ecclesiastes talks about uh, God setting eternity in the hearts of men, uh, it might give us a glimpse into man seeking uh, the true story. So... um, that's going to wrap up our historical argument for Christ's resurrection uh, over the last few weeks. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me at Campus Evangel on the Twitter or email me, Keith, at CampusPreacher.com. Uh, That's Keith at CampusPreacher.com. Thank you for listening to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and the Campus Preacher podcast in particular, the best of the bunch, I like to, I like to think. I'm not sure if the others agree. Um, so, yeah, until next week, uh, Lord bless you. Keep the bloom. He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can. Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in the land. Some seed fell by the wayside, some of it fell among thorns. Some of it fell upon stony ground.